This is a Federal News Network podcast. Americans old enough to remember when many cities had thriving Chinatown neighborhoods may wonder whatever happened to them. Now the Library of Congress has launched a project to recreate lost Chinatowns as immersive 3D models. Here with more on the project, the library's 2023 innovator in residence, Jeffrey Yu Warren. Mr. Warren, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Now, just tell us about your relationship with the Library of Congress as the innovator in residence. You're there for a year, kind of on assignment, you might put it. Yeah, I'm an artist and educator. I live in Providence, Rhode Island. And yeah, I wrote a proposal based on work I've been doing over the past year to look into the history of Chinatown here in Providence. And I'm lucky enough to get to do that for the coming year at a much larger scale and also to look into other places where Chinatowns and other neighborhoods have been destroyed or lost. And give us a sense of the extent of Chinatowns. We think of it as San Francisco and Boston and New York and so forth. But really, from what I've understood, lots of hamlets and villages throughout the nation had Chinatowns. Yeah, I mean, I'm still learning a lot of it, especially outside of Providence, which has been my focus. But yeah, I mean, I think the biggest Chinatowns and the biggest cities, many of them are still here in some form. Maybe they've been displaced or moved or transformed in different ways. But in smaller cities, that may not be the case. Like here in Providence, a lot of people don't know that there was a Chinatown back in you know 1910. And in the West Coast, there were whole Chinatowns that were also destroyed in racial violence, racist violence in the 1800s. And the people from those Chinatowns often came to the East Coast. And so our Chinatowns in the East Coast have a history of people sort of escaping that and coming to start Chinatowns here. So there's a connection that goes across the country as well. So fair to say they disappeared for a lot of reasons. One, as you say, the violence and wanton destruction, but also by simply urban renewal, assimilation and dispersion of the Chinese population. I mean, just like a lot of city dwellers, they went to the suburbs and got wealthier and so forth. Yeah, certainly there are a lot of different stories and not a lot of them are overlaid. I mean, here in Providence, the Chinatown from 1910 was destroyed when Empire Street was widened. So it was all at once. But then the subsequent Chinatown neighborhood across what is where the highway is now. Yeah, I think that kind of more gradually dispersed as people, you know, moved into neighboring cities and suburbs and things like that. Although I don't know the full story of that. And I looked forward to kind of learning more about it in the coming year as well. All right. So let's talk about what you're specifically doing for the Library of Congress, trying to recreate the Providence Chinatown and other Chinatowns. And if so, how do you begin to go about doing that? Well, I think for me, one thing that's really important about the process is I live in the neighborhood that was Provinces Chinatown today, so I'm a resident of that neighborhood. I can kind of think about what it used to be like here. And I'm not Chinese-American, I'm Korean-American, but as an Asian-American person living in Providence today, that history has a special meaning to me. And to be able to sort of imagine what it would have been like to walk down that street or be in that enclave, I think it is very special. And so I think... For me, this project is not just about remembering the harms that were done, you know, the why is Chinatown gone, you know, the moment of its destruction, but actually to think about the more human moments, the the community feeling, the everyday events in this neighborhood and how rich it was and alive it was and the stories of people there. So that's the perspective that I'm coming into this through. We're speaking with Jeffrey U. Warren. He is the 2023 Innovator in Residence at the Library of Congress. So the output will be then some way to visualize what it looked like and what happened in the original Chinatown. And how does that happen? Well, that's the, yeah, that's in the weeds, I guess, in the process is basically going through 
all these old photos, old maps. I even have a kind of a map where I pin up all these pictures and try to figure out what I'm looking at. And eventually you can begin to see buildings from different angles and to rebuild them in a 3D program. And the end goal, which I've achieved to some degree with Providence's Chinatown, is that, yeah, you can kind of log in, so to speak, and walk down that street virtually, almost as if you're kind of a virtual character. But the point is to feel a sense of immersion rather than to see pictures that are sort of in a museum display case or in an old album to feel that you are within the space and even hear some of the old sounds or feel some of the ambient environment. And does the Library of Congress itself, among its holdings, which are vast, have some of these maps and pictures and so forth that you can draw on? And what other sources do you have? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I would say especially the map collection is a really great place to start because you have to know, you know, which building was where and which address is what. And when you look at these old pictures, even the streets themselves have moved around or changed names. And so it's really hard to say, you know, this little corner store, am I looking north or south? You know, that statue in the plaza, was it there 100 years ago? You know, and the question is often no, it was it was moved. And so you have to almost do this kind of detective process to piece it together, mark the dates and things like that. But yeah, it, it can be it can be a, an enjoyable process to begin to peel back and try to understand what this place felt like and to get a glimpse of that. In some sense, there's almost no end to it if you visualize what you could do. For example, searching business records and title records, you could find names of families and small businesses that existed in a certain spot, and that could lead to a whole genealogical exploration. You've got to, at some point, decide, this is what I need to know about this particular neighborhood. Yeah, it's so true. And actually, one thing I found is that when beginning in sort of the official records or the city archives, or say local newspaper coverage, you'll get a very particular view of the community and often through racist language or stereotypes from that era. And so to see past that and see through it and try to understand people's individual stories is really challenging. But one thing I did in Providence was I looked through all in like maybe a thousand different articles from the Providence Journal and I compiled people's names whenever they were mentioned at an address. And maybe they were being unfairly targeted by the police or whatever the case was. But eventually I was able to look, okay, at 51 Empire Street, this is the list of people who are mentioned at that address. These were their names. And this is where it comes into local collections and family collections. I met someone from the Chinese Historical Society of New England, whose family ran the only Chinese language print shop in Boston, and they published regional business directories. So while the Providence Journal may have misspelled or may not have cared too much about getting the details right, I'm hoping we can cross-reference that with the Chinese language business directory to really understand who lived there, what were they doing, what were their lives like. And in your time at the library, do you plan to just be able to make this visualization of Providence, or do you think maybe other cities could get in there too? It sounds like a lot of painstaking work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm starting with Providence. That's where I live. This is where I've begun the work. But certainly over the coming year, I'm looking already at different sites where this could be done. There's a question. Is there Are there enough records? Are there people engaged in this location? Are there local community members who are interested in these histories who I could work with? You know, are there descendants of this or that particular community that want to know this information and perhaps have this very personal relationship with those histories? And so between that and just how many photos are there left over or that I can dig up from whatever collection, um, 
And yeah, I'm hoping there will be a lot of use of these techniques in other places as well. It strikes me that you could also develop a methodology and a standardized practice almost that anyone could apply to whatever law, because many ethnic groups have lost communities in various cities. It seems like you could have a methodology that's reproducible for whoever would like to take it up. Yeah, it sounds like maybe, I don't know if you read my proposal, but there will be what's called a relational, what I'm calling the relational reconstruction toolkit. And I think you're right that there are some techniques that can be reused, especially the sort of, here is how you take the facade of a building and how you map it onto a 3D shape, or here is a relatively well-structured way of organizing the photos and maps that you find and cross-referencing them and things. But there's also just going to be a lot of unknowns and a lot of creativity needed to sort of trace these histories. There's going to be a lot of conversations and a lot of community outreach and, and community collaboration to make this work. Because I really think you can't do it just from the official records. You know, there's just not enough that was preserved to make it work. And, you know, the important part is what does this mean to people today, and especially to Asian Americans and Chinese Americans, you know, who have this personal relationship to the project. And without that, it's not going to be possible. Jeffrey Yu Warren is the 2023 Innovator in Residence at the Library of Congress. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits 
helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, 
Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about. Is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, 
there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.